Welcome back to It's Not About the Bunny, a podcast about Twin Peaks. In fact, the only podcast about Twin Peaks. If you want to listen to a podcast about Twin Peaks, sorry, we're all you've got. (laughs) Well, not sorry, because it's also the best podcast about Twin Peaks. See, that's what I think. I'm Caroline. And I'm Brian. And we are here to talk about what we call season two a overall so that is season two up until um leland's death and uh the episode where leland is caught basically yeah episode nine episode nine right so we wanted to do an overview of 2a because we see this as a unit Mm -hmm. distinct from the rest of season two both in terms of quality, most obviously, but also um, the the storylines necessarily change because uh, the main driving story of the whole series has been wrapped up. But uh, first off, we want to talk about uh, this question, which is, what is the story? Yes. Uh, And, uh, you know, what was being wrapped up here? Mm -hmm. So... uh, I have a couple of uh, thoughts here. I think, obviously, we're talking about the mystery. Yes. First and foremost. Yes. Who killed Laura Palmer? Now we know. Now we know. So I was thinking about this, that there's sort of two different stories. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought these are very different stories. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the story of Laura's killer being revealed. Yes. And the story of Laura's killer being apprehended. Mm. And I think that for David Lynch, the first story is the most important. And (sighs) yeah, the, you know, but then that story wraps up in episode seven. Mm -hmm. And I think for Lynch, that was the end. And I actually do think when I went back and looked at uh, interviews and things, even though it's not definitive, it does seem like the consensus is that that was when Lynch lost interest after episode seven. Yeah, I um, think I think yeah. that's fair. Whereas the the uh, killer is apprehended in episode nine. Yeah, and I think if you see that as the culmination of the story. What that means is that the story is incomplete at episode seven because this, what this was all about was finding out who the killer is so we can get him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that that would be some kind of resolution. Mm-hmm. That he's out there. That's the problem is that the killer is out there. He's killing more people. Uh, he kills Maddie mm-hmm. and we're going to find him and stop him. Yeah. I have some thoughts there. I kind of disagree with you. I think, yes, you're right. I think you're right to differentiate between those two things. I guess where I differ is I think the broader story about both this season and Twin Peaks as a whole is, it's a story about people looking at themselves. Um, You see this, the first shot in the series, in the pilot is a woman looking at herself in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And you see over and over again Leland looking at himself in the mirror and seeing Bob. 
um, the mirror motif recurs over and over, not just in the series, but also in Fire Walk With Me. Yeah. And I think this is a story about the town Twin Peaks looking at itself mm. and finding out what it really is. Yes. And so for that to resolve... <clears throat> The audience can't just find out who killed Lara. The town does have to mm. find out. I think what is ultimately disappointing is that there's no real um, there's no real resolution to that. There's yeah. there's no moment where the town realizes, you know what, we're not so great. We're we're a place where stuff like this happens in the background, <clears throat> and it's been happening for years. Right, And it's not an isolated incident, especially when you look at this parallel storyline that we've been noticing of Ben and Audrey mm -hmm. and how they almost recreated what happened to Lara. Um, there's no real reflection on that either. And I think what I might have liked is if instead of Leland just dying, he stayed alive and they had to decide, okay, do we put him on trial or not? Mm -hmm. Do Leland and Sarah get a divorce or not? Yeah. What does Sarah think about all this? Sarah kind of disappears from the show after this. And that's disappointing to me. Mm -hmm. Because I think that is that is really the story, as far as I'm concerned. This town looking at itself in the mirror and realizing that well, it's not that great. Yes. You know, I can see a parallel universe version of Twin Peaks mm -hmm. where... The rest of the season is much better because it deals with the fallout. Yeah. It, you know, it where it really, a bunch of these characters should be in a state of existential despair and confusion mm -hmm. Absolutely. that they have to work their way out of. On the other hand, I do think it is realistic in a way that that they just shove it under the rug again yes yeah true. i i think it's not realistic in certain for certain characters like what happens to what audrey does is not realistic to me at all no but the idea that the town as a whole would just continue to <laughs> repress and repress and repress yeah i guess i just feel like if the second half of the show were better and more honest and we should really talk about this season not what we haven't watched yet but um I think it's fine for the town to do that. I just don't like that the show does it. Yes, and the I show think, also moves on. And I think that it would have been interesting to see a story about Twin Peaks shoving everything under the rug again, but the show itself portraying the ways in which that didn't work. Yeah, And exactly. it maybe led to more harm. And I think you can maybe argue, especially by the end of season 2B, that that is what it's showing, but uh, we'll, we'll get there when we get there. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of why I wanted to make that distinction between mm -hmm. finding out who killed Laura and apprehending them, because I, think, I do think it ties into what you're saying, even though there's um, it also complicates it. It's because the revelation is the revelation of Laura's story. Yes. It is finding out what happened to Laura. Yeah, that's fair. Which is when, which is when you really know mm -hmm. what happened to Laura. And her, that's the end of her story is right. you finding out what happened. Right, because everybody in the sheriff's office and Cooper, they were so focused on the murder. Right. And they didn't know what the real crime was. 
really. I mean, the obviously the murder was a crime, but they didn't realize all of the evil that had been leading up to it. They were yes. looking for it in the wrong places. Right. And that evil is also what Laura realized. That mm-hmm. was her revelation that we finally get to share, that her her father was the one who was abusing her. Right. Exactly. And then the problem with the next two episodes, although I like episode eight and there are good things in episode nine, yeah. is that it although you're you're absolutely right, like it did you did need that the truth to be known to everyone else. Mm-hmm. But the way that that happened, even in those two episodes, it meant that we moved on from Laura's story. Yes. And focused on the the apprehension of the criminal, which for from this perspective of the the self-image of Twin Peaks, as, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, that is them preserving their self-image because okay, they have fair. this formalized process that says, oh, okay, well, that happened here. That sucks, but uh, it's okay. It's okay, guys. We have a justice system mm-hmm. and we're going to we, we catch the killer. We've caught the killer. Yeah. Uh, and he definitely did it. And uh, he did commit suicide, so we couldn't really bring him to justice. But, you know, case closed. Right. Um, so that it, it was like the this the story the story in the show were already kind of moving on Mm -hmm. but i do agree that there was another way they could have done it where they they weren't actually moving on they were having to deal with what they're finding out Mm -hmm. and really process it and i would also posit that that last scene or the scenes on the roadhouse in episode seven Mm -hmm. were lynch's attempt to do something like that yeah to have to have at least some people in the town really have a, an emo- have an emotional catharsis where they do do face what happened. Yeah, and the effects that it has, exactly. and how it hasn't just gone away. Laura's death wasn't an isolated incident. Yes. Yeah. But I agree one hundred percent about this being the story of the Twin Peaks viewing itself. Yes. And that, in a way, every as so many of the conflicts of the show are that every character finds himself as like caught up in. They are like the they find themselves trapped in being an an image of Twin Peaks, like a projection. And that's part of what led to Lara's death. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, I do think that those are those are the big stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did want to track Cooper's story. Yeah. Because I do also think that 2A brings Cooper's story mm-hmm. to a very satisfying ending. Interesting. And we didn't really talk about this when we talked about episode nine. So yeah. that's why I wanted to circle back. Sure. Because I do think that we saw Co- the, the victory of Cooper's approach. Mm-hmm. And even though apprehending the criminal, I think maybe wasn't where Lynch's heart was because yeah. it was getting away from Laura, yeah. it does allow Cooper to have a victory mm-hmm. because so much of the show is Cooper missing things, yes, uh, screwing up. Yeah, he does finally get it. He finally gets it. And uh, I had a lot of, uh, of thoughts here. Yeah. 
because I think, well, to back up, we've talked a lot about how Cooper was sort of under the spell of mm-hmm. Truman yeah. and the town in general. Yeah. He was sort of buying into that self-image. Right. But finally, he he comes into his own again. He, he asserts he his independence. He relearns to have faith in his abilities as right. an investigator and his own version of what that looks like. Yeah. Rather than the brute force bookhouse boys version. Right. And he finally stands up to Truman who thinks the case is over. Yeah. He stops Truman from making a disastrous phone call to Leland. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he's, he, yeah, he returns to what he does best, which is solving, solving crimes with Mm -hmm. magic or, yeah. Uh, intuition intuition right so i was kind of seeing this as cooper rejecting the two poles of truman and albert Hmm. because albert uh back in uh episode nine also tells cooper look i give up you know i think that your your methods are irrational Mm -hmm. and not empirical but i'm at a loss yeah you need to do whatever it takes. Right. This interesting development on Albert's part as well. Yeah. And so I think Cooper is sort of uh, advancing beyond both of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Uh, So I wanted to talk about Truman and Albert a little bit as sort of representing two different worldviews. Okay. So Truman always appears to act from a gut feeling. Mm Mm-hmm. But in reality, he's tasked with safeguarding the community's image. And its institutions. And its institutions. Yeah. And he's always acting from those assumptions mm. that the battle lines are already drawn in Twin Peaks. They're the good guys and the bad guys. Yeah, absolutely. So his gut instinct is always the bad guy done it. Yeah. And the respectable guy can be trusted. And exactly. the respectable guy is the same as the good guy. Right. Whereas Albert has a completely different approach. Mm-hmm. He's not rooted in this locality or any particular community. He yeah. has a universal global approach, as he himself says. Yes, his concerns are global. But it's really interesting to look at it that way. It um, And it sort of makes sense of Albert as somebody who uh, can seem at first to be very callous and gruff and um uncaring but it's really just because he doesn't care about any one thing in particular right other than well he has a higher goal yeah which is solving this mystery that's the higher good Mm -hmm. uh solving the crime yeah and going back to the funeral episode he was absolutely right yeah no he (laughs) that the funeral that moving forward the funeral was something the town wanted to do to feel better about itself yep um, and he and was it, right to say that's it less important. the investigation. It's less important. Right. Mm-hmm. But Cooper took his side. Yes. Or Cooper, no, Cooper did not take, Cooper took Truman's side mm-hmm. over Albert. Yeah. Right. So Albert has this global concern. Um, I am aware of the, that there is a, a bit of a, you could easily fall into something problematic here by sure. saying the Jewish character is cosmopolitan mm. i don't know that but that's what it is that's he is yeah in this in this show 
he's representing that perspective. Yeah. yeah. The, the only good, the only thing I'll say about that is I do think the show is putting him on equal terms terms with Truman. I absolutely think so. And I think that especially several episodes in we're definitely not supposed to see Albert as a foil or an obstacle or yeah. or anything like that. Yeah, they they sort of dropped that opposition and by by season, uh, episode 9 he is um some of those rough edges are, are have been polished off and that's when personally I, I had already come to really love that character yeah same and i also appreciate that they didn't polish off his rough edges by turning him into somebody like cooper who's right. really in love with twin peaks and a completely different person yeah he remains sarcastic and cynical mm -hmm. to the end yeah um but uh, he was just not quite as abrasive. Right. So Albert, from this perspective, is committed to an empirical investigation. Mm -hmm. But that also, you know, both of these approaches fail because they're both proceeding from false assumptions that the of a of a given world mm -hmm. of uh, a world that we already know about. Yes. Yes. But that world is what we cannot assume in Twin Peaks, where nothing is as it seems, mm -hmm. not just meaning that there is a seedy underbelly, but that literally whatever you think reality is, mm -hmm. there's something more. Yeah. Yeah. There's always something more to it. So, for example, Truman assumes that uh, Laura's father can't be the killer. Mm-hmm. What Albert assumes is that the killer can be found through an empirical investigation, mm -hmm. but that even if you're talking, um, taking a more global approach, that's still going to be shaped by society's needs. And yes, by your assumptions about who needs to be investigated based on what you know about them and their particular place in the community, which Albert claims not to really care about, but obviously it's going to shape things because he's not going to do a blood test on every single man in town. Yeah. He could have insisted on a blood test mm -hmm. of Leland as well. On every single person that Laura knew. Yeah. Right. Which is how it would be done in, in real life, at least today. At, at least at the very least they would try to rule Leland out. I think. Yes. Yeah. I would it would be a blood test, but they would say, look, this is just, this is just to rule you out. Yeah, this yeah. is just procedural, this mm -hmm. is just routine. Right. Um, and there's also a spiritual angle here because Albert assumes that the truth resides in some quantifiable feature mm -hmm. of a material universe. Yes, yes. So this is almost, maybe I'm stretching, mm -hmm. blue state versus red state. Hmm. Because you have a belief system that is Traditional, yeah. Local, hierarchical, yeah. Focused on protecting boundaries, mm. and you have an opposing belief system that is global, yeah. Modern, egalitarian, because, uh, because Albert treats everyone the same way. Yes, he does. Uh, maybe not. Maybe he see, maybe he doesn't kind of look down on rural people, but that that's sort of also like. That is a, that is like liberal egalitarianism. Yeah, like, we don't we don't really see Albert 
in the city, except for some glimpses in some of the deleted scenes in Firewalk with Me and then later on in The Return. But he really does treat everybody that way. That's true. He does. <laughs> yes. Um, and also, it, I do think Albert is standing in here for a secular viewpoint because he's all about the evidence. Yeah, and it is so interesting that he is a secular viewpoint, but he says his heroes are Gandhi and King, who are obviously spiritual people. Um, yeah, maybe that's a little... Maybe I'm oversimplifying. No, I don't, I don't think you are, because I think that, well, I don't want to call Albert non-spiritual exactly, no. but he is secular in that I, I think his worldview is entirely non-religious. I think he hopes for what I would call, he probably use, wouldn't use this word, but I would call it solidarity. Mm. Um, amongst people because he believes that there's nothing else out there. Yes. It's because he believes there's no cosmic force that's going to save us. Right. There's no outsider making judgments or deciding that people are going to be rewarded or punished. We have to do it ourselves because we're all we've got. Yeah, exactly. And he takes from people like Gandhi mm -hmm. and King. Um, but it kind of, he kind of reminds me of a lot of Western Buddhists who take a lot from Buddhism, but mm -hmm. they see it as entirely um, compatible and maybe even supportable with, with science yeah. and like a uh, commitment to a materialistic worldview. Yeah. Like Albert really reminds me of some writing by like Carl Sagan, yeah, right? yeah. like old, old school, like seventies atheists like that who, who use their atheism as the basis for a moral code because they believe that the earth is all there is and humanity is all there is. And that especially means yes. that we have to protect the earth and each other because no one else is going to do it. Yeah. And, and, and actually uh, I don't want to knock this worldview. No. Um, Cause I, I can respect it uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm not trying to both sides it either. I think it is uh, an improvement on Truman's worldview. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was maybe uh, shoehorning it into the a blue state sort of picture. Yeah, no, I... It's I, more like the best possible version of, of that blue state worldview mm -hmm. that is, yeah, a kind of um, spiritualizing the secular. Like yes. Commitment to the, that what you see is what you get, but seeing yeah. that is therefore the only thing that is sacred. Yeah. It's like, um, I was reading a book recently that I, you know, I won't go into a whole explanation about it cause it's not important, but one line in it, um, stood out to me and I'm remembering it now. Um, it said that under the best circumstances, obviously this doesn't apply to everybody, but the best kind of conservatives are the ones that have very deep social ties and the best kind of liberals are the ones who have very broad social ties. Hmm. And what that essentially means is that conservatives, the good ones, the nice ones, um, will have a very deep and strong loyalty and sense of obligation to a small number of people. And that sense of obligation is something they take very seriously as yeah. like a personal responsibility, as something mm -hmm. that is just part of what a good person, a good patriarch, a good man, a good sheriff does. He looks out for his community, his family, his friends, and he'll do anything for them. But everybody else outside of that circle, you know what, they're on their own. Mm -hmm. Whereas 
the liberal worldview is that of someone who thinks that you have obligations to really every person in the world mm. and every person you encounter, but you can't give everything to everyone, obviously. So you just give a little bit to everyone. And that's why liberals are more likely to say, okay, well, we need a, you know, a state apparatus <laughs> to do this for right. us because you can't expect an individual to shoulder this whole burden. It's not possible. Yeah, absolutely. And so I see that kind of distinction between Albert and Truman, for sure. Yes. And yeah. And for Albert, that that is a spiritual path uh, for him, but also, you know, so he, yeah, uh, um, Albert, Albert could probably really get behind a song like Imagine. Hmm. But in practice, he works for the FBI, so he's not yeah. <laughs> going to bring about a world with no possessions. Or with uh, no countries. No countries, mm -hmm. no. But to be fair, neither was John Lennon. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I think whatever you think of these two views, broadly defined, the show uh, has Cooper surpassing them. Yes. At least absolutely. in his ability to solve this investigation. Mm -hmm. Crucially, Cooper doesn't make any further investigation. Yes. Because that would only be proceeding from his assumptions. Mm. And it would only show him what he already believes. Just like all of the investigation that he did with Truman showed them what they already believed, which is that Jacques is a bad guy. So he, yeah, maybe he did it. Mm -hmm. Or Leo's a bad guy. Maybe he did it. Yeah. Or even just Ben Horn is a bad guy. So maybe he did it. Yeah. So what he does instead is he recontextualizes the same set of data. Mm -hmm. And that set of data is consistent with many different truths. Be, um, if you don't let your assumptions be rigid, but mm -hmm. let the assumptions be the variable. Okay. Because that's the overall context. Instead of proceeding from the big picture mm -hmm. of where we live in a society yeah. which tells us X and Y and Z, and that's where we start from. Okay. You throw that out the window. You have all the information. Mm -hmm. You don't have the big picture. Mm -hmm. So you, like a, like a duck rabbit, mm -hmm. do people know what that is? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the drawing that's like an optical illusion where if you look at it one way, it's a duck and the other way it's a rabbit. Right. It's both a duck and a rabbit at the same time. Yeah, Wittgenstein mm. talked about this. Yes. The duck rabbit. So it's the same set of data, but revealing multiple truths. Yes. That set of data reveals to Twin Peaks that the bad guy's done it. Mm -hmm. But it reveals something very different to Cooper. However, he has to completely throw out all of these uh, mechanical processes for truth finding, mm -hmm. whether it's law enforcement investigations or empirical analysis of evidence. Mm -hmm. So Cooper throws off the influence of Truman, uh, but he's not satisfied with Albert's approach either. And he also throws out his own prior practices. What about, I feel like the other 
investigative influence here that we're not really talking about mm-hmm. is um, the teen detective squad of uh, oh, Donna, James, and Maddie. They yes. do find out some information. They find Lara's recordings. That's and true. ultimately, um, what Donna does leads to those pages from Lara's diary, which gives some information. Now, that's a good point. Um, I... I agree. I think that they still had all, all, most of the clues that they needed already. Yeah. But I do like that idea as well, that in addition to Cooper's intuitive method, you have another non-traditional mm-hmm. method, which is sort of like, I don't know what to call it. It's sort of like a um, truth it's a, it's from it's based in social bonds, but from the bottom up. Yes. From the bottom up, from the people that seem unimportant. Yes, and it's focused primarily on Laura herself. Yes. And on what she was feeling and what she was going through, and it starts with an assumption that if they can know that, then they'll know what happened. If they can find Laura's diary and yes. her recordings and learn what she was worried about and what she was thinking about right. and what she was going through, then that will reveal the truth of what happened to her. Yes, but they they also had difficulty with sussing out who Laura actually was from their what they wanted her to their be. ideas of yeah. her. Um, so I think ultimately they didn't get there, mm-hmm. and maybe that's why maybe that's why it's okay that Donna didn't figure it out, even mm-hmm. though I thought that that would be satisfying in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but even she couldn't do it. I would also point out that what Donna finds out does sort of overlap with Cooper's method in that Donna is put on the right track by magical mm. lodge entities. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So she's also aided. So maybe with Cooper, he's deliberately trying to rely on these powers. Mm-hmm. Whereas Donna is a sort of, maybe by virtue of her connection with Laura, yeah, she is just more, somehow more of a, a, a divining rod or mm-hmm. a resonance uh, antenna for some of these powers. Yeah, maybe. That could be it. Yeah. Maddie too. Maddie too, exactly. Yeah, and maybe... Even without Cooper, they would have eventually figured it out. Yeah, maybe. Um, but ultimately, well, Maddie, Maddie did figure it out. And well, it was, she was confronted with it pretty she, intimately. She figured it out. I mean, I, I wouldn't say she figured it out. No, it was he, it was revealed. He to revealed her. it to her. Yeah. But um, yeah. But in the end, it's Cooper who has to do it, and uh, he even throws away his Tibetan method. Mm-hmm. That's because the intuitive practice by definition can't be mechanized yes so it always has to be changing and Mm -hmm. negating itself yeah the very fact of having a method kind of destroys the method right cooper's process is dialectical Mm. not in the sense of being a product of dialectical forces but try by trying to harness that Mm -hmm. through a dialectical method of investigation Mm which is always changing yes and uh never resting yes because it's it's not it's not rigid because that's not where the truth lies Mm -hmm. so he's leaving behind albert uh 
Albert's scientific mechanical process and mm -hmm. Truman's process. It was sort of like social mechanical, mm -hmm. the mechanical parts of society that make keep it running. Yeah. And what he is lying with or, or staying with is this absolute fluidity of reality mm -hmm. so that he can harness that power, which is uh, absolute creativity of it's creative because it's what you don't already know. Right. Right. And that's why this is something that we said way back in the episode where um, Cooper demonstrates the Tibetan method <laughs> for the yeah. first time. I think you should also remember that this is very much a metaphor for David Lynch's own creative process. Yeah. Yeah. And for him, that process is rooted in transcendental meditation. Yes. Which I don't know that much about, mm -hmm. but it, obviously it is an offshoot of uh, some kinds of Indian practices mm -hmm. and worldviews. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some overlap with Buddhism. Sure. Which Cooper is, I guess, uh, it's kind of, it seems he's interested in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and then he, uh, yeah, I guess, I don't know. He, it's unclear whether he identifies as a Tibetan Buddhist or right. he's dabbling or something mm -hmm. or syncretizing. But yeah, it's that creative process that Lynch has, that Cooper has. Right. That is not making things more, um, uh, that is not classifying reality into finer and finer points or seeing finer and finer details or getting mm -hmm. out a microscope to see all the atoms that make up everything. Yeah. It's more like dissolving all of those things. Sure. Uh, and that's, you know, whether that's the Tao or mm -hmm. emptiness, it's yeah. something that is unstructured. Yes. Yes. Because the truth is unstructured and he's getting past all of the accretions of mm -hmm. cultural programming. And that's how he finds out who killed Laura Palmer. And also he is able to um, guide Leland into the light. Yes. I, I, even though we had mixed feelings about that. Yeah. You can see that as another way that he is victorious, that he is yeah. able to tap into this spiritual power and function almost like a bodhisattva. Right. And I think looking back on it, I think it's more satisfying when you view that scene as um, a moment of, yes, character development for Cooper rather yeah. than Leland. And it's about what Cooper is able to give rather than yeah. what Leland deserves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, in Buddhism, there is this idea of dedicating merit. Yes. Because inevitably people um, feel they have maybe loved ones mm. that they know did bad things mm -hmm. um, or were not faithful. Or, yeah. Um, and they want to be able to do something for those people. Mm -hmm. So the idea came out that you can do a good thing and then spread that merit. That's so interesting, especially when you look at what I think is my favorite scene in the whole series, which is when um, Major Briggs tells Bobby his dream about him. Yeah. 
and how Bobby up until that point had really been shown to be kind of a dirtbag and somebody who maybe had some decent impulses and worries like any teenager, but was pretty selfish and treated the people in his life very badly. And that's kind of the point where it turns around for him and you start seeing that he really does love Shelley and that yeah. he, um, in his imperfect way, is trying to make a better life for her and take care of her. Uh, much better than Leo ever did and how much that comes from the fact that someone yeah. loved him, right. that, that somebody very good loved him unconditionally. And that can be enough. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Yeah. And a great connection to make that this, uh, and, and it's sometimes called transference of merit in mm -hmm. English, but that's not a good translation because the merit of the giver is not decreased. Yes. It's like a candle, lighting a candle with another candle. Mm -hmm. And people like Major Briggs mm -hmm. and here Cooper yeah. in his empowered state mm -hmm. are able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think that that's, that's Cooper's story is, his, yeah. is that he emerges victorious mm -hmm. and um, I don't think they really follow up with this, follow up on this uh, well in the rest of the season, but because mm -hmm. it kind of seems like, as I recall, they're not sure what to do with Cooper. I think he goes fishing. He goes fishing. He has some like spirit journeys with Major Briggs. He, um, and then there's a whole storyline with Wyndham Earl and he gets suspended from the FBI for a while. And um, there's, there's plot. Yeah. But I think I agree there isn't really a whole lot of development. Yeah. Well, we will we will come back to that. Yes, we will. Okay. So that's all I had to say about Cooper mm -hmm. and and the main story of Twin Peaks. Yeah, and I think I think that's right. Yeah, and I think we're yeah we're kind of both circling the same ideas because mm -hmm. the self image Cooper is Cooper sort of like victorious over mm -hmm. the self image of Twin Peaks. Yes. That he yes. has he has to reject that, which mm -hmm. is rejecting Truman. Yeah. It's like, uh, no, abs actually, the um, big important lawyer in town mm -hmm. can be the, the guy who killed his daughter. Yeah. Right. And also there are evil forces in Twin Peaks that you can never destroy, whether they're supernatural or man-made or what. Yes. They're just here. Yeah, and, and then maybe that's something empirical science can't tell you right. either. Yes, exactly. That it's uh, it's whether you call that spiritual or just something that is based in value judgments that mm. aren't that aren't quantifiable. Mm -hmm. It's it's something that Albert can't discover. Yeah. All right. So that was a big topic. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, not, not sure if this is going to be a two-parter or not, but we have a couple more things to cover. Yes. So the next question is, were you satisfied with the, the, uh, well, what the resolution, the resolution to the Laura murder plot? Yes. And I think this is something that we touched on or you touched on earlier is that you have to look at this in multiple ways. Um, there is the revelation of who killed Laura. Yes. And then there is the kind of plot resolution of that person being caught right. and brought to justice. And the first one, I am satisfied. Yes. I think 
Leland is maybe the only character who would have been satisfying in that particular role because it is so shocking because it pays off completely Ray Wise's Mm -hmm. incredible performance in the first season and in the first half of the second. Um, It makes everything about him make sense, which is an incredible achievement because they didn't even know where they were going at first. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is um, sort of existentially destabilizing enough uh, to really justify the time we've put into figuring this out as an audience in, in that it's um, it's believable as something that could really tear a person apart mm-hmm. the way it tore Lara apart and that it could tear a family and a town apart too. Yeah. Um, and I think if it had just been Ben or if it had been Dr. Jacoby or Leo or Jacques, it just, or a stranger named Bob with long hair that, you know, we didn't know anything about, um, it just wouldn't have been that satisfying in the same way. And I, so I think it was absolutely the right choice. And I think the episode, and we'll get to this later too, the episode where it's revealed is my favorite of this half of the season. Yes. Like bar none. Um, It's a masterpiece. Um, So that is, is 100% satisfying to me. The other part, which is, um, as we were saying, the Leland actually gets caught yeah. and revealed to the broader town to be one and the same with Bob mm-hmm. and Bob's more or less true nature as this entity that possesses people and makes them do things and takes them over. Um, and his arrest and death, that is less satisfying to me because yeah. I know that it cuts off any further development of this story um which i think is inappropriate i would have liked leland to live Mm -hmm. and just be a possessed crazy person that they have to figure out how to put on trial or send to an asylum or maybe escape or maybe they'll find out more stuff he did i want to see more of what sarah is feeling about all of this and what she goes through and i want to see more of what Donna thinks when she finds out that her best friend was keeping something like this from her for years, like it started when they were 12. Yeah. And the fact that it was being done by somebody that Donna probably considered part of her family, somebody she knew her whole life and who was friends with her parents and who she implicitly trusted. Um, I want to find out what James thinks about Mm -hmm. the fact that he, knew so little about what Laura was going through. I want to see more fallout with Ben and Audrey um, when they find out about this and they deal with how close they came to recreating it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just so much more story to tell and they don't tell it. And I feel like it's just tied up too neatly for how messy it really is. Yeah. And there's, there are little hints of, you know, the in episode nine, it ends with um, a camera's eye, you know, mm-hmm. view, Bob's eye view, crashing through the woods and the owl, and you get the sense, oh, Bob is still out there. Bob could cause trouble, but um, 
really the show just moves on and I don't think it should have just moved on. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the problem is yeah. that Bob is out there now. Yeah, exactly. When he's the out whole, there, but the whole point is that Bob was in here and he's still in here. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He exactly. didn't go off to the woods. He didn't shuffle off to Buffalo. No. I mean, yeah, like he, he did, we can say that as a narrative device mm -hmm. he did, but mm -hmm. the show is to, the show actually seems to believe that everything that happened had, it, you know, is somehow uh, exercised. It's like they're afraid of what they did. Like, like they they set up all of these really genuinely frightening themes and stories, yeah. and it just scared them. So they didn't want to deal with them anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, like maybe... they they want Ben to be just kind of like a funny character, yeah. and and you can't have a funny character who almost raped his daughter. So. You have to pretend it didn't happen. Well, that's the thing is so many people fell in love with the quirky show yeah, about pie and right. trees. And maybe they were afraid that uh, if they committed to a new tone for the show, uh -huh. that they would alienate those people. But it didn't matter anyway because they right. tried to go back to quirky Twin Peaks. And, and people stopped watching. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with everything that you said. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have much to add. I, I think a lot of the disappointment comes in the rest of the season, but mm -hmm. even in episode nine, as we you can said, tell, they're trying to really just put a put a pin in it. And um, yeah, like by having Leland be redeemed. Yeah, it's almost like that is also Twin Peaks being redeemed and washed clean. Right, and and yeah, and redeeming him. And therefore leaning so hard on the idea that it was purely Bob. Yeah. And it was purely this malevolent entity possessing him, not yeah. something that he did, or even something that Bob allowed him to do that he really wanted to do. Um, that lets both the characters in Twin Peaks and us, the audience, be more comfortable because if it's if it's a bob that means it's not leland and that means it's not you know a nice upstanding citizen in your town doing something like this it's not something that regular people do it's something that people who are possessed by demons do yeah it's like uh going back to the image of twin peaks twin yeah, peaks exactly. is looking in a mirror and saying well we're not evil yeah leland is evil uh-huh and then, but actually, it's not Leland. Yeah. It's Bob in Leland. Yeah. And Bob has been exercised almost yeah. literally. It's it's looking at the duck rabbit and deciding, well, it really needs to be a duck. So the rabbit is just a trick. And I'm just going to ignore the rabbit. The rabbit is actually <laughs> an evil demon. Yes. And it's, so... not, it's not really there. It's not an intrinsic part of ducks. Yeah, and uh, we did a ritual and mm -hmm. sprinkled some holy water. Yeah, and now, now the you demon might is you gone. might you might think you still see it, but you don't. It's gone. No, no, no. Yeah, mm. the the evil has been expelled. Yes, this house is clean. Yes, that's what that's what episode nine is saying. Mm -hmm. This house is clean. Mm -hmm. uh, which I think wasn't true even in. Poltergeist. No, the house wasn't clean. <laughs> the house, wasn't, there was the house whole, can never be clean. There was a whole other because it's built on a fucking graveyard. Well, yes, and that's kind of what um, undergirds so much horror in America and that takes place on the American frontier is this understanding. I mean, this is in The Shining. It's it's all it's everywhere 
this understanding that we are living on a literal graveyard all the time. That is what America is. We're only here running the world because of genocide. Yeah. We're only here because of all of the death that has happened for our benefit. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be paid for one way or another, sooner or later. Yeah. The mill is gone. The mill is gone. And before the mill, the indigenous people were gone. Yeah. And when Bob left Leland's body, none of that changed. No, no. I did have a couple of thoughts about Leland's death that I wanted to run by you after after we recorded Mm -hmm. the last episode. For sure. So... It is unsatisfying mm-hmm. that Leland gets to be redeemed yes. without yes. really doing any kind of penance. Yeah. But we were sort of assuming that when Bob says, I'm going to have Leland kill himself so I can exit, mm-hmm. that that was just Bob. Yeah. Just how the show presents it. But mm-hmm. we've always maintained that you can't really, you can't really untangle them. their motivations. Yeah. Um, and even if you can see two different motivations, those motivations might uh, lead to the same action. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, could we see Leland's death as a suicide of a guilty person? Yeah. And that it's only after committing to that act that he's able to be redeemed. Hmm. But still, I think, I don't think that completely solves the problems. I think no. it's still messed up that he... There's a, there's a notion that he uh, goes, that he's reconciled with Laura, but it, yeah. be, it, yeah. it would be more in keeping with how we've been talking about Bob Leland. I think, I think that's a very complicated question. I think for one thing, if, if we're looking at Bob as a metaphor, um, suicide is actually relatively common amongst abusive men. Mm. Um, and familicide is more common um amongst abusive men that is uh there's domestic abuse or sexual abuse happening in the home and then when there's some sort of crisis um either being caught or being separated from the family members you're abusing um the man will often kill the family and then himself well yeah but even just simple suicide is something that abusive people do Hmm, that's interesting um and threatening suicide is something that abusive people do it's and i I just don't want to like imply that suicide is always an abusive act or anything like that it's it's obviously always much more complicated than that but i think we can definitely put leland killing himself in the context of leland being an abusive husband and father Mm. and see it not as something that redeems him but something that gets him off the hook it's him off the hook. Yeah, or yeah. something that is a way for him to avoid consequences. That's interesting. Which is the Bob. Yeah. Essentially the Bob, the Bob part of it. Well, not just the Bob part of it, but also just like Leland, just well, yeah. if, if Leland kills himself, then he doesn't need to have his reputation destroyed. He doesn't need to right. go to prison. He doesn't need to lose his marriage and his standing. Mm-hmm. Um, he can just be a crazy guy. And, not have to deal with any of it yeah no that's that's really interesting and he doesn't have to answer any questions to for instance sarah right who probably has a few yeah 
Well, actually, she may not have any questions, to yeah. be honest. But yeah. um, Sarah knows. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that a lot. Um, and it, it does kind of blow apart my theory. <laughs> uh, and I'm just trying to figure out, like, which, which of these is true and probably... Well, it's the duck and the rabbit. They're all true. Yeah. Um, I think... But I think that what you're saying rings truer to me. If we're actually looking at it as as a metaphor for real behavior in mm-hmm. the world, yeah, that someone who who actually does what he did, I probably if they if he were to then kill himself, I wouldn't think, oh, he felt guilty. Yeah, I mean, maybe guilt was in there for sure. Yeah. But I think a desire to escape any kind of accountability is also in there. Yeah. You know, to Sarah, to Maddie's parents, to Laura's friends. Yeah. I mean, maybe you could say it like this. So much of his self, so much of his self, mm-hmm. like his constructed self yeah. over his whole, well, not his whole life, but for what... Uh, however many years, seven, yeah. six, seven, eight, uh, has, is tied up in abuse. Yes. And we can presume if Bob has been in him since he was a kid, there's probably other fucked up things that he did that we don't even know about. 100%. And over time, Bob, probably he's gotten worse. And, does, and does Leland even know what he is without Bob? Exactly. This goes to the idea of him yeah. being like, a vacuum, a whole mm-hmm. yes. of a person mm-hmm. who, yeah, is, you know, at the, without any ability to abuse people further. Yeah. Especially Laura. Mm-hmm. Who is he? Yeah. So if society is requiring him to face up to his crimes and mm-hmm. be reintegrated, yeah, which may not mean actually being reentering society, but being in. It could just mean being in a prison and that's mm-hmm. the way that you're in society now is that you have been recontextualized as a prisoner who is paying for a crime. Yeah. Um, he can't deal with that. There's something um, in the cases of familicide, which is a person, generally a man, it's almost always a man, yeah. um, killing his um, family and then himself. Um, even when it happens in families where there had been no abuse previously, when it tends to happen is when somebody who had a very successful life and was a very mm. successful family provider is suddenly faced with a crisis that yeah. disrupts his own view of himself yeah. as this provider, um, like losing his job, losing his savings, even if things aren't hopeless Mm -hmm. the very fact that he might have to ask for help or that his wife might have to get a job or that his reputation might be damaged that's so destabilizing to men like that that they don't know how to live anymore and they're so convinced that their families are dependent on them that they take their families with them yeah that's a really good point yeah and that's that's this whole constructed self Mm -hmm. that has to be destroyed and really in a way, by destroy by by literally killing themselves, they're actually rejecting the destruction of their constructed self. Yes, and not facing that. Yeah. So the next question I have is, mm-hmm. which elements of the show were most improved in season two? A. Yeah. 
Um, so I have to say, at least at least for this viewer, the most improved was Josie. Um, mm -hmm. In particular, Joan Chen's performance, I think, gets a lot better. And I think the writing for her just gets better. Yeah. I think um, she becomes a more well-rounded character. You see she's actually pretty smart. She's pretty savvy. She's gone through a lot, even though you don't necessarily know all the details. I think it comes through in her performance how afraid she is of certain things. Um, I think in season one, Josie just seems like a femme fatale who meets the needs of the plot at the moment. Um, and the various contradictory things that her character does. It doesn't seem to come from any kind of internal source, you know? Um, but I think in season two it does. And I think Joan Chen is really good. Mm -hmm. And uh, they give her more to do. And I think it pretty much all works. Yeah. I think the only other thing, it's hard to call this most improved because it's not like I think it was bad, but I like Major Briggs so much more mm -hmm. in season two. And this rewatch made me remember how many, how my affection for him as a character really all comes from season two. Because in season one, he's kind of a jackass um, to Bobby, especially. Mm -hmm. uh, and they seem to be telling a story of, well, Bobby's a selfish dirtbag because he has this kind of cold, unfeeling military father right. and this weird passive mother. But um, I think the change is completely believable. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy Major Briggs so much. I think he's such a fun character to have on the show. And yeah. Yeah. I agree with those answers. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say what improved because... Well, something's got worse. Well, some things got worse, but also the things that were good in season two were also good in season one exactly, for the most part. Exactly, for the most part. But Josie, that storyline was much improved. Yeah. That was one of my answers mm -hmm. that I had for this question. And the other thing I wanted to note was Cheryl Lee. Yeah. Because I think she's good in in the first season. Mm -hmm. And um, the bits we get of her. Yeah, we don't get much of her. And I, I, I do think that you can tell she is not really a professional actor mm. in some of those early scenes. Well, I mean, she had done some acting before, but she wasn't like very experienced compared to other people on the show. Yeah. Laura Flynn Boyle, I think. Mm -hmm. Actually, I don't know what the others had done, but yeah, I, I know they had more experience than she did. Mm -hmm. uh, but at any rate in season two, mm -hmm. I was just blown away. Yeah, she's really incredible. Like in every scene, She's bringing so much more to it yeah. than is there in the dialogue. Right. And I think if we're talking about the way things kind of fall off after this first part of the season 2A, it's because they lose some of the best actors. Mm -hmm. They lose Ray Wise, they yeah. lose Cheryl Lee, and they lose Grace Abriski. Yes. And that's, I mean, the Palmer family, that's, that's where the heart of the show is. Yeah, and that last one wasn't even necessary because she's still alive. Right. There could have been Sarah plot lines, but, but they all would have been depressing. Well, maybe, yeah, I don't know. Maybe Grace Zabriskie had other things going on. Right. But... She was never on the show as much as the others, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know. At any rate, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, let's see. Uh, next question. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest downgrade oh, in this Um... Well, let me let yeah. me let me venture you go first. first. You go first. I have I have some general 
I have some notes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The plot and pacing get a lot messier. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, Especially, I mean, I will say, let me me back up a little bit and say, I liked... I like this uh, this season, season two, a a lot more than I remembered. Mm. And I thought all of the episodes except nine were very strong. I liked them all. Yeah. Uh, and I, I didn't have as many quibbles mm-hmm. this time around as I did in the past. So a lot of this is really just what comes up in season nine. But I do think the groundwork was laid that mm-hmm. they... Season nine was trying to fix problems or, or to, to wrap things up based on what had come before. And I'm not sure they did a great job of setting it up. Mm-hmm. They didn't set themselves up for success in, yeah. in episode nine, probably largely because Lynch wasn't even thinking about episode nine. Yeah. He was thinking about episode seven uh-huh. and that's it. Yeah. But yeah, some of the... By the, by the time you get to episode nine, and we already talked about this, but just things don't make that much sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, even before episode nine, there's just some weird things. There was that one episode that was written by um, Jerry Stahl mm-hmm. while he was uh, deep on, in on it. drugs. Yeah, yeah. Like with the, he was going to the bath, bathroom to shoot off. Yeah, uh, to shoot off. To, to shoot, shoot up. To check off. <laughs> also shot off i don't know sometimes you just gotta you just gotta shoot off um (laughs) anyway yeah i agree with you there's just so many examples in this season of characters very obviously spinning their wheels like what i wrote down for this question is that i'm i'm sick of ed and nadine and norman hank yeah um but also the Lucy, Andy, Dick Tremaine stuff yep. and how it just never seems to go anywhere. And it just, mm-hmm. it, it's so obviously deliberately drawn out just to take up time yeah, and just out of a desire to not resolve things. Yeah. And um, it just eventually strains credulity that every single person on the show would be so avoidant of making a decision about their personal (laughs) life. Right. Um, Obviously for no reason, except that we need to keep things going because they're all in a TV show. Yeah, I agree. And I would add that even parts of the, uh, the more interesting plots seem to be placeholders. Like, yes. Like they, they go talk to Mike like three times. I don't know. There's some weird stuff with Mike. We're like, they keep bringing him in and then he they let him go or he escapes and then they have to talk to him again but it's uh it's just not clear what they're they don't have uh it's not tightly plotted the way that the first season was yeah and stuff like audrey being trapped at one eye jacks it takes so long to get her out of there and it's so convoluted the way cooper finds out she's there finds out well he finds out he's supposed to rescue her and it's obvious to us, and it should be obvious to him where she is. Right. But he doesn't put it together. Yeah. So he has to wait to for somebody to tell him. And 
then he has to get like a posse together and then they have to go do it and then yeah, it doesn't work they did. and yeah. and it's like why isn't anyone treating this like an emergency <laughs> yes you have characters acting in ways that don't make sense mm-hmm. or acting or, or not being as smart as they are. Yeah. And that's bad. Right. That's bad TV writing. Exactly. It's classic bad television. And writing. I mean, it does, it doesn't have to be because people are like passive and avoidant in real life all the time. Like if you look at a show like the Sopranos or Mad Men from the golden age of TV, it's full of people not learning lessons and mm-hmm. making the same mistakes over and over. And keeping themselves in situations that are obviously terrible just because they don't want to make a decision. Yeah. But you can have that be character based, you know, or thematically based. You, I mean, you can have that be the story. Yeah. Um, and that's not what it is here. And those characters think that they're doing something. Exactly. think that they're changing and learning lessons. Yeah, exactly. And that creates the, the dramatic interest, mm-hmm. which is also a kind of dramatic irony. Exactly. After a certain point, when you realize, oh, these characters are, are not They really haven't learned anything. Or changing, <laughs> yeah. uh, are progressing. Uh-huh. And in fact, if anything, they're choosing to not do those things. Or they're constantly. getting they're getting worse. Or they're getting worse, yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not really what's happening here. Um, I mean, Hank and, and Norma, that storyline doesn't know what it's doing because it right. should be that Norma is afraid of Hank or what he's going to do. And right. And you know, women he, stay in bad marriages all the time. Like, of course you can but write it stop, about that. It stops being a bad marriage even. Right. Because we don't see Hank. Um, because Hank is m- mainly just helping her out in, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the diner. Yeah. And when they start to complicate that relationship, they do it by bringing in, her mom uh-huh. and having the 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 you know the conflict be that Hank knows this Ernie guy from prison mm-hmm. and he might spill the beans or use yeah, it or something. Right. It's like I don't know. Like have Hank drop his his mask mm-hmm. with Norma yeah. and have her think I gotta get out of this. Yeah. And, and, and maybe maybe have her think uh I have to shut down I have to shut down the diner or something. Something. And and like Ed and Nadine, it's a sort of similar thing. I think the writing is a little better with Ed in that it's pretty clearly established why he's staying with this woman who makes him miserable and why he feels like he owes it to her. Yeah. Um, there are specific things that happen that explain that. And I think it makes sense, especially when she like becomes completely mentally unhinged. And thinks she's in high school. Mm-hmm. He decides, okay, well, someone has to take care of her, and I right. owe it to her to take care of her. Like that makes sense. It's just that the teenage super Nadine stuff is so odd, and it's so overplayed and unnecessary. And yeah, it, it was already it hard was to already, live with her. It was already hard to live with her, and it's already clear why Ed does it anyway. Right, but they didn't know what to do without just showing the same scenes over and over again. Right, right. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure there what they what they could have done different uh, exactly, but uh, maybe just have less of them. I don't know. If, yeah. you, if you really have written yourself into a corner mm-hmm. um, and you don't want to change the dynamic without yeah. doing what they did, which uh-huh. <laughs> having... Uh, having Nadine fall in love with Mike. Yeah, that happens a little later, but yeah. 
but that's that's where they're going uh -huh. and they don't know what else to do no i don't know uh yeah so i agree with those points i also have i also want to add tojimura as something oh, that is a downgrade um and like <laughs> piper laurie's performance is never my favorite no. in season one and that um continues I I enjoy her as Catherine more in this season. Mm -hmm. But like why why was this offensive yellow face drag necessary? It wasn't. It's it's again, it's another thing to just sort of drag a storyline out and give her literally. something to do. Literally. Well, not literally <laughs> drag, yeah. In, in multiple senses. In multiple right. It's just it's so weird. The only part where I enjoyed it was when it seemed like Pete was trying to pick Tojimura up at the bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's it's just not realistic. No. That the, and I know that the show is in many ways high. Twin Peaks is not realistic. I don't know. I don't know what I mean. <laughs> you exactly. heard it here first. Well, that's we've talked about, yeah, like how some elements of the show are weird, but not in a Lynchian way. Yes. And that's really when it falters mm -hmm. is when it's odd, but it's not odd the way that Lynch is odd. And yeah. this is just odd in the way that a soap opera is odd uh -huh. because it ha this is a soapy plot line. See, this is, um, there's something that John Waters said about Baltimore is that it's his favorite place to make movies about, um, beyond just the fact that he grew up here and he's really familiar with it. Mm -hmm. But it's because it's full of people who are completely nuts but think they're normal. <laughs> um, and I think Lynchian oddness has to have a little bit of that in that right. it has to be played straight. Yeah. Um, at least on a certain level. Like we talked about like whether Twin Peaks is campy or not um and camp is kind of played straight kind of not like it, it's a complicated dance and it's hard to do well but i think the thing about david lynch is some a lot of the stuff that lynch does that people think is really weird he just thinks is really great yeah um and not normal exactly but <laughs> just it's just stuff that he likes you know like yeah. a lot of like cheesy 50s and 60s culture stuff that kind of comes off as like ironic or poking fun at it he just likes that stuff yeah that's true and i think um it's not it's not self-conscious with lynch and i think a lot of the stuff that you're pointing towards the non-lynchian weirdness on the show is is very self-conscious and very like deliberately trying to be weird and david lynch on the other hand is just a weird guy mm -hmm. who's just doing what he likes yeah I agree. Yeah. And as for the soap opera thing, if you go back and look at season one, mm -hmm. which was the soapiest season, yeah, Lynch was very careful about what he took from soap operas. Mm -hmm. And it's true that he conceived of Twin Peaks as what he called a blue velvet soap opera. Mm -hmm. But what the soapy elements were more that it was very plot heavy yeah. and, and uh, very like emotional mm -hmm. and that there was 
there were there was a swelling music yeah and when two characters were in love it it takes it so seriously mm -hmm. that um it, it invites ridicule almost yeah. how uh swoony the music is sure when we have scenes with james and donna or whatever but right. james and donna are just acting like teenagers basically mm -hmm. and all the what ben horn is doing all of his machinations are kind of soapy and how convoluted they are but they're also the actually the kinds of things that a rich man in a small town does yeah yeah there wasn't really anything in um season one on the level of someone disguising themselves mm -hmm. as another character and yeah. having people not recognize them right that's more like so and so has an evil twin yes Yes. Or people dying and coming back to life mm -hmm. suddenly or Right. It's what... it's like the soap opera um, you know, twin or identical cousin thing um that they did starting in season one was just Maddie. Like that like that was a soap opera pastiche when she was introduced. Yeah, um, that's true. But it's much more human and not treated as just like a a joke and is um explored on human terms and even though it's like obviously ridiculous that laura would have a cousin that looks exactly like her yeah uh and well i i don't even think it's ridiculous no the casting makes it yeah heightens it and it's also what i mean when i say it's a soap opera pastiche is that it's deliberately paralleled with scenes from um invitation to love right. where you see oh jade and emerald they they look alike but they're so different that's true yeah those elements and then they use her to confuse people mm -hmm. because she yeah um yeah that's true uh, but it is still pretty grounded in that she's not a secret twin we didn't know about. She's no. just a cousin that happens yeah. to look like her. Yeah. Um, and and that, the, and and there's yeah. the thematic resonance mm -hmm. of people. It's not just done as pastiche, but yeah, as you were, this is basically what you were saying mm -hmm. that that the having a character that looks like Laura is thematically important. And it's also important in that. Um... I'm not sure quite how to say this, but the fact that it is like a soap opera-esque plot contributes to the human pathos yes. in that Maddie struggles with the fact that everyone expects her to have this special connection and resemblance to Lara that she doesn't really feel. And that's a burden on her that is very painful. Yeah. Um, she's not just like coincidentally like Laura. Um, so this sort of, it, it's like the cultural idea of this, you know, identical person who right. must have some sort of like spiritual or psychic connection to the dead person. Um, that's something that the characters are aware of too. And that means that they respond to it emotionally as real human beings. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely. that's and that's not true of the Tojimura no. thing, where everybody just plays it completely straight, and they don't recognize it's <clears throat> Catherine at all. Whereas I think if it was more like the Maddie plot, you know, you would have had at least one scene with somebody reacting to it in a human way, <laughs> like you know, you yeah. would have had something with like Pete, I don't know, struggling the fact with the fact that he was 
attracted to this Japanese man or thinking about that. Right. Yeah. But I think the reality is there was no way to make it thematically. No, because it it came out of nowhere and it meant nothing. And, uh, and this, this uh, started under Lynch's watch. I know. We can't blame that. I I mean, I don't know if it was his idea or not, but he, he was a, he was cool with it, I guess. Mm -hmm. So that's not something that happened after he left. No, it's not. But I think it's, I don't know. I, th- I think he was starting to lose interest before he officially left. And I think, I don't know. It's just not as tight. I mm. think there are more cooks in the kitchen in this season than you can tell. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, and there were always conflicts between him and Frost over the direction of the sure. show. Sure, yeah. Um, which they haven't talked about that much recently, but sure. that was also there and may have contributed to, uh-huh. or did contribute to them yeah. burning out on this mm-hmm. project. Yep. And so, yeah, I think you, this, sh- the, this season feels a lot more, uh, like it, yeah, polyvocal and mm-hmm. that there's lots of different viewpoints kind yeah. of struggling. And, you know, some more obviously, um, evidence of producer input in that, you know, they got a lot of pressure to yeah. wrap things up. So they did. Yeah. By the way, it, when you yawn on mic, it might make people think that the show is boring. I, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry. It's Look, boring to us because we already know everything. No, no, it's not boring but... to us at all. It's full disclosure. <laughs> your friendly podcast hosts are expecting a child which means that this podcast host is currently pregnant and tired all the time. That's all it means. Yes. Sorry to call you out. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure the listeners didn't get the wrong impression. No, we're just having a baby. Yep. Uh, yeah, just like Andy and Lucy. Just like Andy and Lucy, except we are being less dysfunctional about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, okay. I think that's enough uh, for that question. Mm-hmm. The next question is which storylines don't work, which I believe we've already answered. We've already pretty much answered that. I think I, I put down the stuff at the beginning of the season and at the end of the first season with like the Jacoby heist. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really go anywhere ultimately and yeah. too much time is spent on it yeah. compared to the payoff. But that's really my only thing that we haven't talked about. Right, and... Uh... My answer was just Norma Hank and Nadine yeah. and Andy mm-hmm. Lucy. Yep. And actually some of these, there were parts of all of these that I liked. Oh, for sure. But you can see that it's starting to break down. Mm-hmm. Then, okay, what is your favorite episode of season 2A? Gotta be seven. Yeah. I was hoping to have a more contrarian take, but... Yeah. It is episode seven. It's a masterpiece. I put it up there with anything else Lynch directed, honestly. Yeah, but also the first two episodes are also very good. Quite good by Lynch. Quite good. I have a dark horse pick though, which is episode eight. I like episode eight a lot. I really like episode eight. Mm-hmm. I think that might be the high point for Ray Wise's performance for me. Yeah, yeah, he's um, very good in that. I mean, he's he's good throughout, and he's incredible in episode seven too. But um, he just gets to do so much in episode eight. It's like it's a swan song for him. Yeah, is it wrong that 
for me to say that I, I think in in episode nine when he is just Bob, mm-hmm. that maybe his performance in just those scenes it's broader. Gets it goes a little too far and mm-hmm. into the realm of cartoony. Yeah. I mean I think the writing isn't as good. The writing's not as good. Lynch certainly wasn't around mm-hmm. to give him notes. And uh, also, he had, <laughs> there's a problem where the performance was so big already that it's like, yeah. how much further can exactly. he go to be a demon? Exactly. <laughs> but he's still he's still good in that episode, too. Yeah, but... although you're right. In, in a lot of ways, I wonder whether it would have been scarier or um, more effective if he had been more restrained yeah. as Bob. Because it's like... He, uh, Ray Weiss was much scarier when he was just casually doing the thing with the match. Mm-hmm. And like um, looking ahead to the return when most of the season Cooper is possessed by Bob, or at least yeah. the Cooper that we see, the doppelganger yeah. is. Um, that's a terrifying performance. And he never gets as big. Right as Ray Wise Bob does. Yeah. Um, it's like it's a completely different evil entity, mm-hmm. which is, you know, interesting. We'll talk about that when we get there. Yeah. Okay, so least favorite episode. Um, This is hard because I do actually really like this season, but yeah. um, I think it's nine. It's nine. And I like a lot. There are a lot of things I love about episode nine, but it's just so disjointed mm-hmm. there are so many abrupt tonal shifts yeah that i i kind of just wish they had left all the lucy and andy shit out and just saved it for the next episode or something yeah. if they had to have it um because like cutting between that and you know the scenes with leland in the jail cell it just doesn't work mm-hmm Unless you believe that Dick Tremaine is a lodge entity, which <laughs> I do. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's that's it. It's mm-hmm. uh, and just a lot of the plot elements start to break down, like the timing of like how did mm-hmm. uh, how was Ben supposed to be able to do the murder when it seemed earlier it seemed like he had already been taken in. Yeah. When the murder happened. Right. Things like that. Uh huh. Or like. Um, the business with the blood tests, like it's, mm. uh, um, it's just all a little unclear. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so favorite character, <sighs> Maddie. I also had Maddie. Yeah, I mean Leland is up there too. Um, those are my two favorite performances, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I think, especially watching this one, maybe it's from being older. When I first saw this show, I wasn't that much older than these characters. But I think Maddie is just so heartbreaking. And, yeah. and Cheryl Lee's performance as her is so sincere. And mm-hmm. this very interesting dance between being very open and very guarded. Yeah. Um, which is really fascinating to watch. Um like she she at times seems very vulnerable but she has this kind of steeliness to her yeah um just kind of showing that she's lived a little bit longer than the teenagers she's interacted with she has just a little bit more experience of Mm -hmm. life and um 
she's so she's a very compassionate person but she is very drawn to her desires um in a way that is like Laura and and Mm -hmm. a little dangerous and um I just think she's an incredible character she's fascinating yeah and ultimately she decides to to be the mature person in this love triangle Mm -hmm. and say not just to to leave to exit but then to say yeah to the other characters look don't worry about me at all yeah and it's it's amazing we were just talking about like the the weird writing choices that led so many of these characters to just spin their wheels and keep doing the same things over and over again and it's like maddie is the only character who makes a decision yeah and who says, you know what? I'm not going to be in this love triangle anymore. I'm leaving town. Bye. Yeah. yeah. And she pays for it. <laughs> and she pays for it. Yeah. Yeah. But that shows her inner strength. Yes, it does. Uh, yeah. There was a wonderful performance. Mm-hmm. Now, who was your least favorite character? Surprise, surprise. It is Richard Tremaine. Tricky Dick. Tricky Dick himself. He's so annoying that I honestly, it's like, it's shocking to me every time I see an episode with him in it. He's, mm-hmm. he's so fucking annoying. I'm sorry. There's just no point to him at all. He just causes trouble and sets off a fire alarm. And that's all he does. Do you think he's supposed to be funny? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> or is he supposed to be annoying? I think he's what he's supposed to be is he's supposed to be unlike Andy in every single way, but not in a way that makes us root well, for him. Yeah, we've talked. We've talked through yeah. this that it, he should have been like manly. Yeah, yeah, he should have been unlike Andy in that way, and he should have had a mix of good and bad qualities rather than just only bad qualities. Right, and it's like I. I get what they were going for in that he has this sort of superficial sophistication, mm-hmm. but it's so superficial that it just ends up making Lucy look like an idiot well, for falling for it. It's like Lucy already knows that he, yeah, that he's like this, right? It, so, it just makes it feels like the show is making fun of Lucy for finding this guy appealing, right, in the first place. And as much as Andy is a big goober, I never felt like we're supposed to think Lucy is an idiot for dating Andy. Yeah. Like, they're just a couple of goofy people who loved each other, and that's mm-hmm. the story. Whereas Dick Tremaine, it's like, I don't know. It's it's contemptuous the way the show sort of treats Lucy's attraction to him mm-hmm. because it's so obviously stupid. Well, I don't know, because it's kind of hard to miss, but paying, well, I was paying close attention this mm-hmm. time around. It's actually clear that Lucy sees through Dick Tremaine pretty quickly. I think quickly. she sees through it by the time we meet him, yeah. And then the only real uh, conflict that she has... Is the baby. Is that she may want, if he is the father, mm-hmm. that's still important. yeah. Um, but I don't think the writing is very good and mm-hmm. doesn't really drive that home. No, it, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. Like it, they could have her say that. Yeah. Which they don't really. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So we have to infer it. Right. And it's just so obvious that she's going to pick Andy in the end. Right. Um, It's not a real conflict. It's just, again, it's dragged out for the sake of dragging it out. Yeah. Yep. Well, I had a different answer. Not because I don't dislike Dick Tremaine, but the thing is, when he was on screen, I did feel something. Hmm. Even if it was just irritation. Yeah. So I picked Norma's mom. That's a good one. Because she's just boring. Yes. And every time she's on screen, I lose interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. And that's like another instance of um, underwhelming writing in that Norma's mother being this sort of outside of Twin Peaks sophisticate who's really snobby. Mm -hmm. Like there's a story you can tell there because if Norma's mother is like this, then why is Norma running a diner in a small town that caters to truckers and her husband is a guy who just got out of prison? Mm -hmm. Um, Like what happened in Norma's life to cause that separation if her mother is like so obviously upper middle class and snobbish. Um, Right. But they don't really go there with it. It's just this, yeah, a superficial conflict. Yeah. Um, If they had used it to explore her backstory, that would have been great. Right, right. Yeah. And also, uh, well, yeah, you could see her as someone who didn't do, you'd see Norma, that is, as someone who didn't follow the path that was set for her by her parents, mm-hmm. right? But who is, she is also not unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. She's a small business owner. Yeah, that's probably the only diner in Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many restaurants are in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Probably several. But she is, you know, she's following her own path mm-hmm. and is uh, even following the American dream in a way. Right. Although it's usually the American dream for. Uh, the working class mm-hmm. to be a small business owner. Right. And maybe for someone who's born into the upper crust. Yeah. That, even though that's, that's successful by many people's standards, maybe that's mm-hmm. still too vulgar because yeah, you're stuck in some small town wearing a demeaning outfit. Right. And I mean, you can sort of tell with the younger characters in Twin Peaks, I think the class differences aren't really emphasized by the show but they're there and so you can tell the difference between the teenage characters who are gonna leave the town when they finish high school they're gonna go to college like um donna is destined for things outside you know donna is gonna go to college she'll become a lawyer or a, a doctor like her dad or or do something um that probably won't bring her back to Twin Peaks. Or if yeah. it does, she'll be another member of the upper middle class, like minor aristocracy of Twin Peaks that runs everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Lara was probably on that track too. Um, Shelly is not. Shelly's going to be there for the rest of her life. Right. Um, Bobby is somebody who maybe could have left, but he's also tied to Shelly. And his family is a little different class-wise because his father is military. And so he's, it's just a different situation. But, um, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, again, going back to the surprising realism of Twin Peaks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, The way these characters turn out is so realistic. Yeah. Shelly 
stays a waitress. Yep. Bobby, the fuck up kid, comes uh, a cop. Military yep. guy becomes a cop. Yep. Um, James is a security, security guard. guard at a factory or something. Um, Another yeah. law enforcement uh, mm-hmm. figure. Yeah, but so like, those are the jobs, right? Unless right. he wants to be the janitor guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, somebody like Ed just stayed there. Yep. Running a gas station, and that's a good life for somebody like Ed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I agree. I think that's that's realistic. It's just Norma's because of her mother. It, it's shown to be a little more complicated than that as far as her social class goes, and they never really explore that at all right well i think that about wraps it up yes um we're gonna take a little break Mm -hmm. it'll be four weeks instead of two um before we start on season 2b or not to be or not to be sorry i'm gonna be a dad so i'm practicing my dad jokes yes (laughs) yeah we hope you enjoy that one um (laughs) oh i wanted to give a shout out to longtime print subscriber mm-hmm. who left us a very nice review on itunes yeah that was nice to read so thank you yeah thank you for that uh and they asked or they said that they hope that we continue on to fire walk with me in season three mm-hmm. and that is absolutely the plan yes the baby might complicate it a little bit uh so we'll see how that goes no but we will tell you the podcast comes first. <laughs> yeah. Between the baby and the podcast, <laughs> the choice is clear. And yeah. The priority mm-hmm. has to be the, has to be content. Yeah. I mean, a baby is sort of like, kind of like content in a way mm-hmm. that we have produced. Yeah. Right. But only in a, an inferior sense. <laughs> right. The baby's going to cost us money, not make us money. Oh, yeah. It's the opposite of content. It's negative <laughs> yeah. content. Negative content. Yeah. He's, uh, he's negative value, not yes. surplus value. Well, that's okay. Uh-huh. We're we'll joking. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but we do intend to finish this up. or And even uh, after we're done with Twin we've, Peaks. We've got a ton of plans. We want to talk yeah. about the movies that influenced Twin Peaks. We want to talk about the books. We want to, you know, maybe do an episode or two that's just like, just on Audrey or mm-hmm. just on Ed or something like that, you know? Um, so there's a lot more to come, but we are going to take a break for the next four weeks before we start on the rest of season two. Yep, and then we might double up on some of those episodes mm-hmm. because um, there are a lot of them. There are a lot, and I'm a little concerned that there won't be as much to talk about. Yeah, but I am trying to keep an open mind, and I don't want it to just be talking about what we don't like. I mm. want to try to weave weave in uh, as, as much of the larger themes that we've been talking about as we can. Yeah, if insofar as they are there to be found. Right, and there is still some good stuff to come. Right. So we don't want to discourage anybody from listening or from watching the show. So we will see you in about a month. It'll be the new year. We look forward to it. Have a good one. All right. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thanks so much for listening. We are expecting to release new episodes of It's Not About the Bunny every two weeks. So if you like what you've heard and you want to keep listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. If you don't like what you're hearing, that's cool, but please, please keep it to yourself. Bye.
Shove my buffalo, shove my buffalo, shove my buffalo. 